Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. It's a great hymn, isn't it? So, we're in our study of Mark, and uh, we have gotten to the passion of Christ, worked our way through the circumstances that surround His death. We've made it through the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, and now we come to the crucifixion itself. And probably at some point or another in your life, you were taught not to look directly into the sun. Do you remember being a child and someone, we grew up in Florida, I guess if you grew up in the Northeast, like Gail did, she didn't know there was a sun until she <laughs> moved. But, you know, you're told, you're told that. Now, here's the thing, we could talk about the sun, we could study the sun, we can enjoy the wonders of the sun, but just don't look directly at it. I got to tell you, that came to my mind while I was looking directly at the crucifixion. I know a lot about what the cross has done for me. I have seen its work in my life. There are many things about it that I love to talk about, but I got to tell you, looking at it closely, directly at it, is very hard to do. It's very hard to see what Jesus endures, especially uh, when you consider it's the most important event in the world, and it's something we have to see. It demands our attention. Um, It demands more than that, as we'll see. Well, the gospel writers help us. They know looking directly at the physical agony of Jesus would be far too much for any of those who love him, for anyone looking at somebody crucified. And so the gory details are really left out and of the gospel writers. They, they, they all kind of do this. They all give us a little bit of chance to look at it. And uh, if you look at the text as a whole like this, and you just see where it says, where it talks about the crucifixion itself, you can see how uh, sort of economic Mark is, how reserved he is in talking about the crucifixion. It just says, they led him away to crucify him, then they crucified him. They crucified him. There's not even adjectives here. There's no sentimentality, there's no sentimentalism, no adjectives. It's, it's stated very, very simply. Again, the most important act in, in all of history, and... Uh, Mark's done with its description right there. And there's a reason for it. You know, if you get, if you look at it, the the gory details, you might get emotional. And perhaps Mark and the gospel writers don't want your watery eyes to blur your vision of what it is you're supposed to see here. Because the last thing Jesus wants from anyone is to feel sorry for him. He doesn't want that. In fact, right here in this moment in Mark, Luke, or Mark doesn't say it, but Luke does. I mean, Simon the Cyrene, you know, he grabs the, because uh, Jesus can't carry the cross anymore. So they enlist this guy, Simon, to pick it up. And right at the time 
that's happening, Luke mentions that there are some women who are freaking out, basically, emotionally over what Jesus is experiencing, and they're close enough to Jesus for him to actually say something to him, to them. And this is what he writes. This is what is said to them. So a great number of people are following, and women are mourning and wailing, and Jesus turns to them. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this moment? You are weeping for him. He says, do not weep to me, for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves. It's just amazing. Even in this moment here, Jesus recognizes what's at stake. And he understands that for the people looking on, there is something very important for them to decide, and they can't get distracted by the, by the horror of the crucifixion. Don't get distracted by its horror because there's something that must be decided here. A fate far worse than what's happening to me, Jesus says, will befall anyone who doesn't recognize who I am and what it means for them to see me clearly. In other words, this is not a moment for freaking out. It's a moment of decision. It's a moment of decision. He goes on to say, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren. People who didn't have kids, why? The wombs that never bore children and the breasts that never nursed, why? Because they will begin to say to the mountains, the horror will be, they'll say to mountains, fall on us. For if such things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What does he mean by that? He just says, if they'll do something like this to me who doesn't deserve it, Think about what will happen to those who do deserve it. Think about the judgment coming, and the cross stands between you and that judgment. And Jesus wants you to see that, and Mark doesn't want your eyes to get watery over the gory details. And somehow, you feel sorry for Jesus, you feel good about feeling sorry for Jesus, and miss the point. He doesn't want that to happen. And so... Uh, he helps us a little look at this without giving us the gory details. Another piece that's really important to this, and you can do this on your own, we could have made it a sermon in itself, is all of the allusions in this passage right here to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is sort of a prophetic text. It looks forward to the crucifixion, describing a righteous sufferer. It anticipates before crucifixion even existed what Jesus would go through. And Mark has four or five allusions to Psalm 22. It's worth reading, especially if you are suffering and you don't feel like it's just. Because here's Jesus in the same thing. So Mark gives us the Psalm 22 text to remind everyone in the room, hey, listen, before you start feeling sorry for him, I'm not going to give you the gory details. And one other thing I'll help you with this text, he says, is remember God's behind the whole thing. Psalm 22 is prophecy. This, this day has been determined since the beginning of time. God has Jesus right where he wants him. That's to help the listener not get lost in the gory details. Now, you say, uh, think about this for a minute. You see Jesus crucified here. 
three times. I know this is impossible to read, but I just want you to see the text as a whole. Because guess what? Jesus isn't the only one crucified in this text. You'd have to feel sorry for everyone. Jesus would just be lumped into every other person who's experienced crucifixion. And by the way, thousands had been crucified before Jesus. In fact, look, it says, and they crucified two outlaws with him. Well, you could have felt sorry for them too, and then then it's like, what's the difference? What's so unique about Jesus' death, at least in this text, that Mark wants us to see, that makes him stand out among others who have been crucified and others who are being crucified right next to him? Well, let me show you another picture of this text to help bring that out, and that's right here. The purple stands for royalty. The purple stands for royalty because they put a purple cloak on him. And I have the purple in there because the purple stands for all of the mockery. Because this is where Mark comes off the chain, really. He, he's not reserved at all in describing what, how they treat him uh, from a verbal standpoint. The mockery that comes to Jesus. And you can see in the other color here, who does it? And it's everyone. Literally everyone. The soldiers do it here. Uh, You have the chief priests. You have the experts in the law mock him as well. Even the two who are crucified with him speak abusively to him. So everyone around him is speaking abusively. You say, well, doesn't one of the thieves come to Christ? Yes, later on he comes to Christ. But he starts out in the camp with everyone else abusing Jesus. So everyone is doing it, and that's where Mark focuses. And you say, what does that tell us? What do we need to see then in the crucifixion based on all of that purple, based on all of the mocking that is going on? Well, obviously Mark wants us to realize that something more profound here than just another gruesome crucifixion is occurring. Something more profound. And so the mocking helps us see a few things. Um, they help us to see some things about Christ and some things about ourselves that are not so great. First, you can see that the mocking helps us understand the magnitude of what Jesus was claiming. Because you say, what exactly were they mocking him for? Well, that's what the purple's about. Because it's all about the title they gave him, which is King of the Jews. They mocked his, his supposed royalty his supposed kingship. And you can see down at the end of the text, which, uh, let's see, I think I have it here. Here's what they yell. Let the Christ, there's the Messiah, that's who they call him, that's who Mark has been presenting him as, and the king of Israel come down from the cross, that's what they're calling him, Christ and the king. So you can see the reason the mocking is important is because it points to what is it about Jesus that we should see that the gory details of the crucifixion should sort of set aside for a minute so we could see what we need to see. And we need to see that he is the deliverer from God and that he actually is a king. And that means he deserves our surrender and our submission. And they know it, and they say it out loud, and all the mockery centers around that. So you see what's at stake, because if you know why they're mocking him, then you know a little bit about the kind of decision that has to be made as you're watching this gruesome event. 
The other thing it reveals, uh, it reveals our hostility. The mocking shows. All of that purple is a, I mean, that's a lot of hostility. There's, there's anger and contempt and abuse. Where is all this anger coming from? Who would be mad at him? And, and what is it? Well, he's, it all centers back to that claim. If you look at the hostility, they put him through this mock. That's what this whole section here is. It's a mock enthronement. If they were to enthrone a Caesar that day, this is what it would look like. He'd get a royal robe. He'd get a crown. They'd put a scepter in his hand. They would bow down and pay homage to him. They would call him king. That's what they do here. And it becomes sort of a game to them. It's just parody. It's Romans. Imagine if you're a Roman and you despise the Jews. And you get a chance to take out on one of their insurrectionists, someone who you perceive as being against Rome, and you get him in a room by himself, because that's what happens. They take him into the king's palace. They get him away from everybody, and they beat him. They've already beaten him at the last trial. Now they're beating him again, but now it's with mockery. And you get your hands on him. You're going to take out a hostility and an anger and contempt, it's all going to come out. It's just utterly abusive. So you got a robe, you got a scepter, you got a crown, you got all this homage, and they're basically saying this is the kind of king the Jews deserve. This kind of king. Not really a king at all. So their blindness to who Jesus really is just spills over into outrage. You're like, and contempt, and you're like, where's all this coming from? And here's what it comes from. It comes from his claims. It comes back to the fact that he's Christ and the king. Because Jesus' person and his claim forces everyone in the room and everyone who's looking and everyone who's staring, it forces them into an all-or-nothing decision, and we hate that. We hate that. We much prefer to leave our options open when it comes to worship and when it comes to doing what we want to do. So Jesus is <laughs> the kind of person that you either utterly despise him and you mock his kingship. You mock it. You go, that's not a real robe. That's not a real crown. That's not a real scepter. So I'm doing what I want. That's... Or, or, that's a real robe, that's a real crown, that's a real scepter. I've got to surrender. You have two options. He's a faker, he's real. There's no, there's no middle ground. In fact, the people who are mocking him realize that. Look at the verse that I just showed you here. Because they say, look, you call yourself the Messiah and the King? Come down from the cross. Look, why? Why would we want to see that? We want to see and we want to believe. They fully understand that if you see Jesus correctly, how you see him determines how you respond. We don't see him as the real king, so we're mocking him with all kinds of hostility. But if we were to see that he was the right king, then we would do everything he wants us to do in this entire time, and that is to trust him and to believe in him. So even the text, even his mockers understand that you either go all the way to mockery because he's not a real king, or he really is king, and you better bow and believe. The question that the whole book of Mark has been about, the whole book of Mark, the theme is, 
do you see who he is? Because that'll change your perception about everything else. How you see Jesus. He's either going to drive you wild or he's going to drive you to worship. And either Jesus is a mock king or he's the real king. And that question has to be decided. Unless you have found some middle ground. Well, you say, you know, Peter, I'm not going to be say I'm on either end of this spectrum. I can tell you this. I certainly wouldn't put a mock robe on him. And I certainly wouldn't beat him over the head with the scepter I put in his hand. And I wouldn't give him a crown of thorns. And I, God help me, would never spit in his face. And so all of a sudden, you're going to feel a little bit better about yourself. You're going to feel a little bit better about yourself. But here's the thing. On the same, in the same breath, you'll say, but I'm not going to do everything he tells me to do. And see, Mark is saying, you're in no better situation than the ones who are mocking him because you don't understand his claims. That's why some say that the mockers, the hostile, the abusive, are acting more authentic toward Jesus' claims than the ones who walk, who walk the middle road because they understand what he's saying and what he demands. And it either is or isn't true. And because I don't believe it's true, but I see clearly what he's asking, I'm not doing it. That's responding with more integrity than the ones who, who walk the middle road. See, because either you lack integrity. If you walk the middle road, you either lack integrity or you lack understanding. You're not hearing what Jesus is saying. You're not hearing it. Because he's asking for what he's asking and what he's claiming demands one of those two responses. I was uh, recommended by a preacher that I like um, uh, to read a to book. I downloaded it this week. It's a, it's a series of short stories by Flannery O'Connor. She writes these stories. And, um, and so one of them is called uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And um, it's a story about a family who's going on this road trip. They're traveling through the south headed to Florida. It's a husband, a wife, a couple of kids, maybe three kids, and, a, and grandma is traveling with them. Okay, fits right in with sort of our life right now. And they're going to Florida, and Grandma has done some reading and realizes that in this area that they're going, is, uh, there's a killer on the loose. He's got a few guys, but he's killing everybody. Broke out of prison, and he's killing everybody. And so she's been alerted to it throughout the story, and then they're on their way, and then they encounter these killers. And so there's a dialogue, and the whole story's centered around the dialogue between Grandma and the criminal who they call the misfit. So the grandma who realizes he's going to kill everyone in the family now uh, is trying to convince him that he's a good man. You're a good man. Pray, she says. Pray. Pray to Jesus. And the misfit, the criminal, is looking at her. And this is what he says to her when she asks him to pray to Jesus. Jesus throws everything off balance, he says. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do. If Jesus is really who he said he was, there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, 
then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can. And that means either killing somebody or burning a house down or doing some other kind of meanness. There's only two responses to Jesus. Now, as you read that story, you, you, a minute you're going, what does this, what does this, does, what is the author trying to say? Well, in a letter later, Flannery O'Connor tries to explain the dialogue that occurs between them two because it has generated lots of uh, conversation. Uh, he explains it this way. It's a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her special or superficial beliefs. The misfits more profoundly and the misfits more profoundly felt involvement with Christ's actions which set the world off balance for him. In other words, he's saying the misfit, the criminal, understands Jesus' claim better than the grandma does, who's this sort of supposedly just a nice old lady. She just walks the middle of the road. She just uses Jesus because she's in a pinch. That's what the story's about. Because if you read the story up to this point, before she brings up Jesus, you don't expect her to bring up Jesus. She's a nasty little grandma. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Stevie. You nasty grandmas. Okay, this is a nasty grandma. Uh, she, is, she is not an admirable character. She is certainly not spiritual up to this point. You don't expect Jesus to come off her lips. She's manipulative and selfish, and you can see her dominating and controlling this family. And the beautiful thing about the story is the misfit reads into her desire to, to try to convert him because he knows that she's just playing the nice religious card. She does not really love Jesus. At the end of the story, sorry to give it away, he shoots her. Yeah, it's basically the Christmas song, Grandma Dies. <laughs> grandma, listen, listen, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the major holidays, Grandma takes a beating in some of the songs and some of the stories. <laughs> He shoots her, and listen to what he says. This is how the book, this is how this little story ends, okay? It just it made me just sit back in my seat because you got basically two corrupt personalities, one who's nice and one who's mean, neither of them, or at least the one who should be following, neither of them are where they need to be on who Jesus is. This is how it ends. He shoots her, and then he says to his little partner in crime. This is his words. I close the book. She would have been a good woman if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. I was like, oh man, that is a shot. You better believe that's a shot. That is a shot. And see, it's the whole point of, yeah, if I put a gun to your head, then you'll do the right thing. But Jesus is not enough to make you do it. You see? Jesus isn't enough. It's going to take a gun for Jesus to fall off your lips and really be who he's supposed to be in your life. It's a profound little story. But it's essentially what's going on here in this text because one or the other is true. You either are the hostile person or you surrender your life because you don't like the options. See, we like options. It's the exclusivity of Jesus' claims that drive everybody crazy. But see, that's the point. If he really is king, then you got to surrender. There's, there's only two options. You can't have both. 
If he really is who he said he was, there's no option. You got, you got to surrender. So, uh, that's the message. And, and I'll tell you, uh, not only are we hostile toward Jesus' claims, because we like to keep our options open. You know, hey, on some days, don't you want to do what you want to do? You know, and in, the, in the course of a week, every 24 hours, there's going to be some moment where you've got options before you. And if, if Jesus doesn't play the role in your life of eliminating options and he's the only one with the option, something's wrong. I must be walking the middle of the road. And it's not only, you, you want to see where that hostility really lies? Because in case you don't see it in yourself right now, and you might not, because I know you wouldn't consider your nice self, who would never spit on Jesus, hostile. But think about it this way. Because it's not only his hostile claim, or not only are we hostile toward his exclusive claims, we're hostile toward his weakness, his weak ways. You're like, hey, if you want to claim to be king, that's fine with me. But why do you act so weak? You know what I'm saying? Why do you act so weak? We hate a weak God. In fact, that's the other part of this text. That's what all this section is about. Listen to what they say. They crucified him, divided his clothes. They put an inscription above him. And then, look, they walked by shaking their heads. Ha! <laughs> Funny. That's really funny. It's so funny to me that you would say that you can destroy a temple and rebuild it in three days, but you can't come down off a cross. Really. Uh, the others. He saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's really the Christ and the king, let him come down from the cross. We don't like his weak ways. We don't like his weakness. We hate that about God. And I'll tell you where you see it in your lives, and we've all, I bet, experienced it at some point. Why does he allow pain? Why is he allowing a crucifixion, a crucifixion like this even to happen? You know, the gory details left out. What's going on? What kind of a God would do that? And we say, God, what are you doing? And sometimes we say it really mad. Why would you let Ever said that? Have you ever said, why me? As if, God, do you know me? Because nobody who loves me would ever let that happen. Right? You ever been mad at God? You ever surprised by his weakness that he would allow pain and difficulty? Oh, yeah. We get angry. And we mock God's love. Oh, you say you love me. How many people won't come to Christ? Because, I mean, I've, I know lots of stories. You know them too. You might be one. Yeah, well, you don't know how I grew up, and you don't know what Jesus put me through. If he really loved me, he'd have never let that happen to me, and because he did that, I can't. That's what we say. That's us being hostile toward a God who won't do what we would do, which is absolutely per pursue self-fulfillment. We would absolutely put ourselves first if we were king. If we were king, we would use our power to make sure we got what we needed 
That's not the kind of king God is. And that drives us crazy. And see, the irony is, we're saying to him, and they're saying to him, there is no way that God could be saving the world through somebody like you. There's just no way. You're entirely too weak. Because they live by an ethic of self-fulfillment. Jesus didn't live by an ethic of self-help and self-fulfillment. Because we think God should be more like us. Should focus on himself just a little bit more. And we get mad at him when he doesn't. And yet, the whole irony of this text is that God's power is seen in his weakness. That he's willing not only to be weak, but to stay weak even while we were mocking his weakness. Mark wants you to see that. Mark wants you to see just how powerful he really is in staying up there in weakness. It's not something you and I would dream of or do if we could. It's not how we would do. And what Mark is saying is God is so much, far more infinitely merciful and loving than you and I can ever even grasp. And it makes us hostile. It's, it's, it's power in weakness makes us hostile. We're no different than them. Because he expresses his power in not coming down off the cross. When you think about that, I want to show you a set of verses that are just so absolutely important that Paul mentions for us to understand here that Mark's bringing out. I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, look, the Jews, you know what they demand of God? They want miracles. Hey, show me something great. Come down off that cross like you said you would. Rebuild that temple in three days. We want to see it. The Greeks, on the other hand, there's other people who prefer something smart. Hey, listen, we want it to sound really philosophical. Like, wow me with your intelligence, God. So that's what we want from God. Because that's how we would do it. Smart people want smart answers and sort of supernatural. Show me something big. That's what we want from God. And here's what he says. But look what Paul says. We preach, sorry, we preach a crucified Christ. And I know you're going to trip over him. He's a stumbling block to everyone else, and some people just think it's ridiculous. But that's what you get. You say, why? The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God is, de- God is showing that he's actually smarter than the mockers, and he's actually more powerful in his weakness than humans. He's so other than we are. We're not even on the same page when we think about saving us. God couldn't put us in a room to come up with the plan. That's why in chapter 2 of this same text, he goes, it would have never entered the mind or the heart of a man to come up with a plan like this. 
God chose what the world thinks is foolish to shame the wise. See, ultimately, we thought we were shaming him. We're the ones who are looking like the fools. God chose what the world thinks is weak to shame the strong. Listen, the strong and the wise. God will never do it that way. And you're going to see why. You're going to see God chose what is low and despised in the world was regarded as nothing to set aside what is, what is regarded as something. And there's one solid reason why. No one in the room gets to say, that's exactly how I would have done it. Nobody gets to say that. No one in the room. <laughs> By the way, this is why I love Christianity so much and why it's so unique from every other religion in the world, because there is no other God you've ever heard of or thought of that would have done it this way. There is no other God you've ever read about, discussed, considered following that wouldn't have come down off that cross if he had the chance to, except for this one. You won't encounter one in history or philosophy or any of it. You won't encounter one. Not even in mythology, where we made gods up and we knew we were making them up. Did we come up with a god like this who was this loving? We never did. We couldn't have, we couldn't have done it. That's why it's so supernatural. And he goes on to say, he's the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. He became God's wisdom. Again, so that nobody boasts. This was God's plan. Nobody could have done it any other way or any different. It's just profound. And you say, what was he doing on that cross for us? I mean, what was he doing? Well, he was doing two things. He bore our shame. Hebrews 12, 2. What does it say? It says, fix your eyes on Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Remember this line? Despising the shame. The shame meant nothing to him. You and I would have acted out of such self-centeredness had we been mocked like that. He looked at that shame and it didn't faze him because he knew what he was accomplishing. You know what he did on that cross? He took our shame. We were the ones who were really shamed, and so he took our shame. You know what else he did on that cross? Becoming helpless? What does Romans 5, 8 say? I got it up here for you. While we were still helpless, Christ took our shame. That was in the mockery. That was one thing we despised about him, because his claims are so grand. But then he's so helpless. You say, why was he helpless? Because we were helpless. He took our shame, and he took our weakness. He became helpless for us. On the cross, Jesus became helpless for the helpless. It's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. You know what he's saying? You couldn't have saved yourself. And had I have done it your way, you'd have had no hope. Then all of a sudden, on the other side of this thing, you're going, thank God he did not come down off that cross. Do you see the power in that? I'm asking you. Can you see the power in that weakness? 
And by the way, I'm just going to wrap this up by saying, well, what does that mean for us? Again, Jesus made these incredible claims and demonstrated power and weakness, and we must go to one side or the other. We don't have options. And what's critical about, what's interesting about this text are the characters in it alongside of Jesus associated with the cross. Let me just mention them to you and wrap this up. Here's what is going on. The two characters, or there's really three characters, but two groups. You've got Simon the Cyrene. He's roped into this story. And then you have the two thieves at the end. And what you have is you've got pseudo-disciples, stand-ins, because the real disciples are missing. That's what this whole, it's the case of the missing disciple. (laughs) The two thieves, as soon as you see them on the right and the left, As soon as you see them on the right and the left, you know Mark is trying to remind you of two people. Who are they? James and John that wanted to be there, and they're not. They're missing. And then when you read, as soon as you hear the soldier's force, a passerby to carry his cross, and then you got this name next to it, who do you think of next? Simon Peter, but where's he? He's missing too. All the regulars are gone. We got stand-ins as disciples, pseudo-disciples. In other words, at cross-carrying time, the main players are missing. In other words, they completely missed who Jesus was up until this point and his claim. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, I'll show you a picture of a text that will bring this to life because the disciples are missing. And you've got, listen, do you take verse 1521 that just talks about Simon the Cyrene. He's from North Africa. That's what they, he's a Jew from North Africa who just happens to be coming into town. Imagine being him. You're just coming into town and you get <laughs> shockingly roped into maybe the most important event in all of history, but you don't know it at the time. It's just a gruesome thing. And the way it describes him, he's a passerby. His name is Simon. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus, who, by the way, are his sons. Who The reason Mark brings them up is because they're in the Roman church that Mark is writing to. And he says to them, hey, guys, you're not going to believe this, but Alexander and Rufus, you know them. His dad was the one called upon to carry the cross. And they're like, oh my gracious. That means somehow this, this affected Simon. And whether he, in likelihood, he was converted as a result of this. He saw what he was supposed to see. And his sons have become believers and are now in the Roman church that Mark is writing to. That's why he brings their name up. It's incredible. But they mention him as the father, and then they mention the two brothers, and then they got the language of he takes up the cross. If you go back to chapter 1, when Jesus originally calls the disciples, in that, those four verses, you have all this same language, and Mark is trying to get you to remember, where are the disciples? Remember when we called them? Jesus passed by. You had Simon come. He was fishing. And then they were... They were Remember, he had brothers, and then he had a Jewish father that they left. They left his father and everything to follow him. It's the same thing all across the board. It's almost as if you got Mark saying, that's who should be following, but they're not. Look who is. Just stand in disciples. When I talk about that, there were two things that came to my mind. Real simple. 
First of all, how do you know you're in the middle of the road? How do you know you're one of those stand-in disciples? If it works for you, you're in. If it doesn't, you're out. Well, two things. Number one, when it comes to cost-paying time, do you always bail? Again, all of the options that you have in the course of a day or a week to act out, all the options available to you, because Jesus is in your life, do all those options get thrown out because he's in your life and you're like, I got a lot of options here, but because of Christ in my life, I really only have one. If that doesn't happen to you, like on a regular basis, like in a 24-hour day, if you're not experiencing that, then you might be a middle-of-the-road guy or gal. And the other thing is suffering. This is a really hard one, so I want to make sure that I'm gentle for the sake of all of us. When we are going through difficult times, can you look at the cross and remember that God sometimes does work in weakness? That he does work in difficulty? Because he proved on the cross that despite our hostility toward his weakness, sometimes he chooses the difficult route to accomplish his purpose and plans. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this in the cross or not, Jesus becoming helpless for you. But I do know that Jesus, sometimes circumstances, you didn't expect to see it. That's how most people come to Christ. They, they were surprised by the wonder of the cross. And I'll bet Simon was too. Simon, get up under that thing and follow him and watch him. And, and Simon had to follow and watch this whole deal. And I'll bet it drew him in. I'll bet when it was time to put that down and nail Jesus to it, he didn't leave. I'll bet by now he was sucked in and he watched Jesus say everything he said from the cross, things like, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. I'll bet Simon saw what the Jewish religious leaders could not see. He gave his life to Christ. It affected his family. It changed his life. His sons are now in the church operating. You can read Romans 16 to see Rufus. And that could be you today. Yeah, I just wandered in here with a buddy. I just came in because it's Thanksgiving week. Who knows why you're here? But God will grab you and bring you in, and you'll see what you've never seen. And maybe today you're seeing it. If you're seeing it for the first time, uh, I'm just praying you'll, give your uh, you'll surrender to him. You'll surrender your life. Why don't you bow your heads. Father, thank you for your love and blessings, for this, for this such important scripture that we get to look at. As hard as it is to look at, Father, there's something so profound here to see, and we, all we can do is just utterly thank you for what you've done. And I pray that everyone in this room sees where they're at in relation to your claim. Is the robe and the scepter and the crown that we have on you, is it fake? Or are you really the king of our lives? And if you're not, today maybe we will see the power of your weakness in becoming helpless for us. In Jesus' name, amen.